Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the time we have to gather together um, this week. Uh, Lord, those Sundays come every week for us. We do not presume that we are guaranteed any more Sundays. And yet here we are for your good purposes, for the good of your church, the growth of your Christians, the evangelization of the lost and the glory of your name. You have given us another day. And so Lord, help us to not waste it, but to give you our hearts as we submit ourselves to your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. The desire for control is a funny thing in that we all want it. We've all seen it be abused. We've all lost it at various points in our own lives. And there's often nothing more comforting and empowering than having total control over something. These past few weeks, this church has been divided into two camps, those who have climate control and those who do not. And while those who do not have climate control are generally frustrated, anxious, and uh, not happy, what's interesting is that sometimes the most frustrated, the most distressed, and the most angry are those who have climate control. When they hear their air conditioner grind to a stop, or malfunction, or turn off in the heat of the day, because anyone knows how when that control you seem to have is threatened, that peace turns into panic, contentment into chaos, and your feelings of superiority into a deep spiral of fear. And what our simple air conditioners show us is true for the rest of our lives. The more we seek to establish control over things in the world, the more we seemingly find places that we can't control. We find the limitations of ourselves and how unlimited it seems the world is. And a few weeks ago, we were in Jesus' parable of the sower, and we talked about the Bible providing for us three primary threats against our contentment in our walk with Jesus. And those threats are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And each of those things threaten our peace on a daily basis precisely because those three things are almost always out of our control. Nothing can make us feel more helpless than a natural disaster or spiritual distress despite our desire to have peace, to feel nearness to God, to resist temptation or the inevitable weakness and death of our bodies. This fall, I'd invite you to join us starting September 4th. We're going to have a short sermon series that actually speaks into those fears, those anxieties, those emotions we might have in the face of life's uncertainties and how we can preach the gospel to ourselves in the midst of it. But for now, as we continue in uh, our study of the gospel of Luke, we aren't primarily going to see how we might respond in the midst of these threats to our control. But instead, Luke is showing us who Jesus is and how Jesus responds to threats that are otherwise beyond our control. However, it's in seeing how Jesus responds and the immensity of his power that we find hope in our own moments of distress. Because while we can't control so many things in this world, we can control how closely we walk next to Jesus. And he is the one who is not limited by anything. 
He is the one who has total control, and we have the privilege of walking with him. So when it comes to things we can't control in life, and the anxieties, and the sorrows, and depression, and uncertainty that brings, the first priority is what Luke is trying to show us in this kind of three-week portion of his gospel, where he is showing the unlimited power of Jesus over things which naturally limit and distress us. And we've seen these things. We saw last week Jesus' supreme control over the world. He spoke to the waves and the wind, and they were silenced. No one is able to do that today. This week, we're going to see Jesus demonstrate total dominance over the devil in him silencing and suspending demonic activity. Next week is actually the text I have most looked forward to in the whole of my study in Luke. I could guarantee you nothing about the quality of the sermon, but the quality of the text is stellar next week, and I encourage you to come back. But in that, we see Jesus not only demonstrate his authority over the world, not only his authority over the devil, but Jesus actually rebukes death itself and turns it backwards. He heals things that no physician could ever heal. And today, we're going to see the wonderful hope of seeing Jesus in the flesh as the power of God, which is good news for all of us who encounter life's hardships not being God. And today we see a story, a dramatic story of power, terror, and redemption. And the big picture is this. That is that Jesus's power, Jesus' authority, excuse me, is powerful, disruptive, and restorative. Jesus' authority, his control over things over which we often have no authority, is powerful, disruptive, and restorative. And as Stephen read for us, um, the, uh, hold on, I do not have my Bible marked here, so give me, that's what happens when I don't preach for a week, I get everything uh, discombobulated here. As Stephen read for us already, the, co- the important parts of this passage, this context, is laid in the opening verses of this story. And for the first time in Luke's gospel, Jesus crosses into Gentile territory. He goes across to the Gerasenes and extends his ministry outside of the area of Jewish influence into unclean territory. And this is kind of understated at this point in the book of Luke, but Luke is going to build this out vastly in uh, Luke part two, the book of Acts. But what we see already is that Jesus's salvation is not limited merely to the Jews. It is for the nations. And in fact, it's probably Jesus' desire for the nations that led him straight into that storm at Galilee because Jesus has come for the lost and there is no cost too great for our Savior to reach. And yet immediately as Jesus sets foot on this new frontier, conflict ensues. Let's read this conflict in Luke 8 verses 26 through 30. Then he sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept, for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? 
And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. So we've all heard stories or read stories of rise and fall narratives, haven't we? Whether it's biblically speaking, we see these figures like Nebuchadnezzar, the biggest, most powerful ruler in the land, who is humbled by God, driven into the wilderness, grows nails like a Missoulian, and and, and eats grass and crawls around on his knees, is completely humbled by the Lord. We've also seen political stories, whether it's Richard Nixon and Watergate or Aaron Burr, the promising young vice president of the United States who in one hot-tempered moment with Alexander Hamilton threw away all of his political future, his fame, and his respectability. Or in the sport world, there's men like O.J. Simpson or Pete Rose who once the brightest stars in their sport threw it all away in dumb places and now, kind of like circus acts, they try to stay ahead of their their, uh, bills and their debts by signing autographs for hours on end, even though at one point they were rich beyond their wildest dreams. But what's remarkable about the man we meet in Luke 8 is not necessarily how high he started, but how far he had fallen. We aren't told there's any significance about this man. We are simply told he was a man from the city. But Luke's description of this man from the city is devastating. As dark as the storm clouds were on Galilee, darker was the state of the man we encounter here in the Gerasenes. This man from the city had fallen so far that even the most basic aspects of humanity were seemingly stripped from him. He had, in ways Luke didn't share with us, become possessed by a multitude of evil spirits, which robbed him of basic control. We can gather from this interaction that this man didn't even have control over his speech. When asked a question, it was the demons who spoke for him. When spoken to, it was the demons who answered back. And not only did they seize his voice, but at times they seized, they oppressed, they dominated his whole body, we see later on in this passage. And more than that, for a long time, Luke tells us, nothing is new here. This man wore no clothes. He that may cause us today to be like nakedness, probably generally unacceptable. If someone was naked in here, we'd feel a little uncomfortable about that. But during this day, nakedness was not only, you know, something that was indecent, it was, actually, it was absolutely debasing. It was to become completely shameless, a complete lack of self-awareness that any human would seek to have dignity to avoid. This man, for a long time, had surrendered all of that. More than that, this man no longer lives in the city, does he? He lives among the tombs. And were he ever to try and make his way back to the city, we see what happens. He is clothed with chains and shackles and put under guard. And even when that happens, the demon would command his body, give him superhuman strength. He would break the bonds and terrorize the city, drive him further away from community into the desert. And so it's interesting, the man from the city is no longer in the city, and he appears to even be less of a man. He has no home, no community, no clothes, and at the hands of everyone who he knew, no hope. We have, perhaps you've read in the newspaper or walked down the streets in Missoula, a homelessness issue. 
And I want you to think of the potential anxiety you might have if you were standing to cross the street and a homeless man in tattered clothing comes and stands with you only to cross the street. Perhaps there's not even interaction between you. And whether good or bad, I want you to put yourself there and I want you to say, what would, how would you feel? Would you be completely at peace? Would you be a little uncomfortable? We know, whether appropriate or not, those emotions we would have. But here, a fully naked man who Mark alludes in his account of this story is probably bleeding with open sores from causing himself harm. A naked, bleeding man runs screaming at Jesus with the voice of a demon. This is the kind of person we cross the street to avoid, and yet he sprints at Jesus. There's a city that has banished him. There's all this darkness which surrounds him, and we as the reader are left with this question, what is Jesus going to do? Is Jesus, just like the city, going to send him away to shackle him and hope for the best? But Jesus is going to do something better. Over this man who himself had no control over the demons. Over this man who was unable to be controlled by his own town, Jesus is not going to send the man away, but he's going to send the demons away, freeing the man. And this is our first portrait of Jesus's authority this morning, and that is that Jesus's authority is inevitably powerful. All of Luke's ability to build out the darkness inside this individual is highlighting the presence of Jesus's inevitably powerful authority. And I say inevitably powerful because as we read this passage uh, and this interaction Jesus has with the demons, we see some really important truths about Jesus and the problem of evil and how that intersects with our own lives today. And so would you read with me verses 28 through 33? When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded, that is Jesus, commanding the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, and he was kept under chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus asked him, what is your name? He said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. So before you ask, this is a weird story. There's a lot of weird things happening in here. It's why, well, what do we do with demons that are demanding to be sent into pigs, and then pigs that subsequently run off a cliff? And it's odd to see Jesus maybe negotiating with demons. And we aren't quite sure of the significance of the pigs. Perhaps it was to actually show us as the readers what would have been the end of that man had Jesus not intervened, that he was destined for destruction. But we do know is that Jesus didn't himself send the demons into the pigs. Jesus gave the demons permission and they themselves went and caused carnage amongst the pigs. But this brings us back to the primary question. What is Jesus doing here? We're all aware with the government line, we don't negotiate with terrorists. 
But is that what Jesus is doing here? Is he negotiating with demons? But if we read this text, if we're doing good Bible study together, we see this is not a negotiation. This is not a story of two equal parties where one had strategically gotten the upper hand is now kind of dictating terms of surrender. Notice again, so in Bible study, we want to look for repeated words. Notice what's repeated three times. Once in verse 28, once in verse 31, once in verse 32. Luke tells us the demons are begging Jesus. They know they're defeated. They are not offering terms of surrender. They are appealing to Jesus's great mercy. Even demons are appealing to Jesus's mercy. And more than that, look at what their first request was and how they understood Jesus's position of power in verse 31. Uh, And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. They begged that Jesus wouldn't command them into the abyss. We don't see Jesus coming and doing, see if, if like the Marvel movie directors were to direct this scene of scripture, like Jesus would come and he'd do a bunch of wasted cool movements and there'd be dramatic like music and he'd summon some cool spiritual things and you'd see like, man, he's summoning all this power, but there's none of that fanfare here. The weapon of Jesus is his word. His word is about to do without any uncertainty, what the strongest chains and shackles of man could not do. These demons had had every effect of man applied to them to try and bind them. But as soon as Jesus set foot on the shore of the Gerasenes, they knew the game was over. They knew they had lost. There was a greater authority who had the ability with his word, not only to defeat them, but to utterly destroy them by sending them into the abyss. And this was a term in one place just used to describe the place of the dead, the place of evil spirits, but it's an important term when it comes to our theology of understanding Jesus' interaction with evil. In Revelation 21, the same word, the abyss, is what's used where John says that Jesus would open the bottomless pit, the abyss, and into that he would cast Satan and his demons and his servants forever. We often say, Johnny said it last week, we'll say it again next week, that walking with Jesus in the midst of hardships is the safest place you'll ever be. We don't say that because it's a cute silver lining. We don't say that because it's a crutch for the weak. We say it because God is the only source of true power in this world. And in the person of Jesus Christ, the triune Godhead has set forth all of his power and his might to restore and save his people now and to one day remove suffering, sin, and Satan forever. And this sort of theological commitment is understood clearly by the demons. They recognize what the Pharisees in this day can't. They recognize Jesus is the son of the most high God. They also recognize that Jesus' victory over them is inevitable. In fact, Matthew's account makes this a little more clear where the demons say this. In Matthew 8, verse 29. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time. The demons knew their time was coming. 
They knew their days were numbered. They knew that Jesus would crack the seal of the abyss and put evil in its place forever. But what we see in this text, in Jesus' interaction with the demons, is that that day is not yet. And while Jesus walked on the earth, we see a glimpse of what the kingdom of God is like. Why? Because the presence of God, the rule of God, and the person of God were here on this earth as it was in the garden. And where the kingdom of God went, demons were evicted. Where the kingdom of God went, darkness fled. Where the kingdom of God went, death itself, as C.S. Lewis said, begins to work backwards. But Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead and then he ascended into heaven. The kingdom of God is ours in Jesus Christ and yet this world is not the kingdom of God. But why? If that day, if that abyss-sealing, darkness-destroying, Satan-shaming day is certain, why not now? Maybe you have joined with the prophets and looked at the pain and darkness in this world and you utter the wonderfully biblical cry, how long, O Lord? Why do you delay? Well, the Bible speaks hope into your life. And the hope can be summarized as this. Why is this day not yet? Because Jesus desires to save more people so that he might be more glorious and we might be more satisfied. Because there are eternal things, better things yet to come, though evil may still exist. Consider what Paul says in Romans 9, verses 22 through 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order that, that is to the end of, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Why vessels of wrath now? For the sake of vessels of mercy later. Peter says this. Maybe we say Paul is he's a little dramatic, but what does Peter say? Peter, 2 Peter 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some of you count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is it the Lord does not come back now? For the repentance of your unsaved family member or coworker or children, that we endure a little longer, that God's grace might captivate their hearts. What does Jesus say in Matthew 24, verse 14? And this gospel of the kingdom, that is the darkness-crushing, Satan-destroying, demon-sealing kingdom, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Why does evil exist? Because we sinned. Why does evil continue to exist? so that God might, despite our best attempts to foil him, 
achieve more salvation, more glory, and more restoration in more and more people than we could ever imagine. But we also see in this text is that despite God's enduring allowance of evil, his saints suffer no loss. God provides his people exactly what they need in the midst of life's hardships. Jesus brings relief in the middle of the world's woes as we await this final day. Jesus is, as Psalm 57 says, the safest place that we hide ourselves in until the storms of destruction pass us by. Here is the inevitable power we need to endure, knowing that one day we will have to endure nothing, for it will be sealed away forever. But before we we see that kind of relief, that Jesus brings, we see another paradox of Jesus's authority and control. This is our second point today. Jesus's authority is uncomfortably disruptive. His authority is uncomfortably disruptive. Read with me Luke 8, verses 34 through 37. When the herdsmen saw what happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So Jesus got into the boat and returned. Here we see another humorous but tragic story. It's humorous because you can imagine the confusion of the herdsmen. Here they are on a normal Wednesday in the Gerasenes. They're sitting above the shore on a hill tending their flock. And then that dude, that one dude that they all know, the demon-possessed crazy man, starts sprinting naked at this small group of people who just crossed the lake. They get out of their boats. Crazy man runs up to him, and then they stop, dead in his tracks, And begins to have a conversation. And then at some point, the herdsmen hear this rustling behind them, and they turn and see what Matthew tells us is roughly 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of pigs. Stand up, 2,000 strong, and just start marching single file off of a cliff. You can imagine the sort of confusion they have in this moment. What is going on? And for them, just as it probably would have been for you if you were there, It was absolutely terrifying. Luke says they fled. That word in Greek means to flee for one's safety. They were terrified at what is happening. And they run into town to tell everyone else. And while they are probably completely confused at what is going on, they know enough clarity to point everyone who they talk to to what who seems to be at the center of this. Because as soon as this crowd of people get there, where do they go? They go to Jesus. They see the source of all of this disruption. The source of this power is this man who got off the boat. And in seeing Jesus, what else do they see? They see the man who was demon-possessed sitting at his feet, clothed and in his right mind. And what was their experience? They were afraid. In fact, Luke tells us in verse 37, they were so seized by fear that they asked Jesus to leave. 
Now, what caused this fear? Well, it's because they have encountered, as firsthand witnesses, the disruptive power of Jesus' authority. They saw the man healed. They knew Jesus was powerful, and they connected some dots from this man who got out of the boat to the man who came out of the hills and to the pigs who died. This authority-speaking Jesus brought a challenge to their previously existing facades of control and comfort. They encountered a man who had control over the man over whom they had no control. Remember, this man was known to the city. This is a man from the city. And the town's interaction with him was to frequently attempt, when he would wander too close, to chain him, to shackle him, and to guard him. But when they did that, when they tried to find peace by binding this man, the demons would break the bonds, the man would run free, terrorizing the town, completely untouched. In our Western world, we see very little Demon possession like this, at least displayed like this, but I was talking to a member who grew up in Africa as a child this week, and she said in the town she lived in, in Kenya, there was a crazed madman just like this. And she would describe the terror that would roll over the whole town when this man would begin to wake and wail and run rampant. This man had mastery over the town, and the town had no mastery over him. And here comes Jesus. And the townspeople see everything Jesus did, and they come to two conclusions that would lead them to send Jesus away. First is they see the sheer power of Jesus is overwhelming. Imagine if you were out in the woods camping, and that night you heard the crackling of some twigs and you shine your light and you see what no one in Montana wants to see when you're backpacking. A bear sniffing around your campsite. And immediately we feel helpless, perhaps as helpless as these city folk would have been with this man they couldn't shackle. But now imagine if you have your light on that bear and then out of the darkness, Something reaches out, grabs that bear, pulls them into the shadows, and all you hear is the bear whimpering and crunching and all these things from horror films. You might experience relief that the bear is gone, but there's a bigger question now, isn't there? What is this thing, and is it good? Is it safe? Is it also against me? What is this new power? And what does it mean for me? You see, Paul tells us in Romans 1 that the invisible attributes of God, namely his power, are displayed throughout the world. The challenge then of our experience is not to see the power of Jesus, but to see the goodness of Jesus. Is the one able to shape the mountains is the one able to sustain the sun, is the one able to defeat the bear, good, holy, kind, and for my benefit. See, we could study a lot of things about theology, the power of God and his sovereignty, but we cannot, if we cannot understand the character and the nature of the God who is revealed, we will constantly approach him with nothing but fear and confusion. They encountered his power. 
and it caused them great fear. But secondly, the work of Jesus was disruptive. What did it disrupt? Well, we see two things in this text, their prosperity and their peace. These aren't, you know, 21st century people in LA who are buying pigs as pets because it's cute on Instagram. This was their livelihood. They were farmers. These these pigs, when 2,000 rushed off, their whole income for the year rushed off. And also, their peace was threatened. This town, perhaps as you do with specific sins in your life, had gotten used to managing it. It was still there, but they knew how to make do with him being on the outside. As long as he was outside of the town, they felt a sense of peace. But now it appeared that this man, being fully restored, was set to regain society. And you can imagine the anxiety that crept in. How do we know he's safe? How do we know this man from the city is not the crazy man from the hills? You see, the town was safe before Jesus' salvation, according to their own perception. Their comfort was protected before Jesus' salvation, according to their own perception. Their flocks yielded prosperity before Jesus' salvation. And we as readers, we see the foolishness of their response. They sent away Jesus? Haven't they read the Bible? Didn't they watch the Passion of the Christ? Haven't they sang like songs like Jesus loves me? Don't they know that this is Jesus as we sing Jesus strong and kind? And yet, how many of us find ourselves increasingly uncomfortable with Jesus' power in our own lives? How many places in our affections, our relationship, our sexuality, our finances, or our pastimes, do we ask Jesus to take his disruptive force and get back into the boat and leave? We were fine before he got here. You see, the legions of demons were cast out of the man, but darkness remained. You might look at Jesus and think he's great. If you run into somebody on the street who has a legion of demons, you might say they need a little Jesus in their life. But for you, you've got a stable job. You've got a strong relationship. Things are good in your life. You don't necessarily need a power as big and as strong and as mighty as this. And while demon possession is a real thing, the Bible speaks much more broadly about those who need relief from spiritual forces. Who is it that needs Jesus? Who is it that's under the influence of the demonic? Well, consider what James says in James 3, verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, let me clarify that. If you are a jealous and selfish person, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Who is it who has legion? Anyone who has jealousy and selfish ambition. That is those who look at the world and boast thinking that they can get what they want on their own. Based on what grounds? Because I've got control. Because I can create my own authority. We think we can get what we want, take what we want, 
and protect what we need. But let's not forget that these people who thought they were safe and free still had a monster on the outside. They were free, but only when they were trapped. Only when they remained in the walls of their city. They thought they solved their problem by their own ambition, but at the end we see they are the ones enslaved. We think that by safely managing our sin, we have solved our issues. But when our hearts are enslaved to sin, there is no freedom apart from sin being removed through the cross of Jesus. And that means when the gospel comes knocking, it comes with destructive and disruptive force. Jesus turns our world upside down. He will threaten your wisdom and your boasting according to the world. This is why Augustine, St. Augustine, this... uh, early church theologian, resisted conversion for so long. He liked the idea of having freedom from death, but he really had a good thing going. He was very sexually active, very desirable to the ladies. He had a posh life. He had high academic degrees that he was worried the gospel might intersect with. But after his conversion, he too was put in his right mind. And he spoke about all of those who, like him, clung to the perceived peace when there's still a monster outside. And he said this. He said, they are more strongly taken up with other things which have more power to make them miserable than that which they so faintly remember to make them happy. You see, peace being separated from a crazy man who lives in the hills and cuts himself and screams at people is a good thing. Prosperity is a good thing. But how easy are those things threatened? What Augustine is saying is he means you could put your time and effort into building big walls and cultivating large hills. But when sheep fall off cliffs, when men stroll back into town, and when storms come, those very same things we put all of our effort into in order to preserve our peace and our happiness and comfort, what do they cause us? Anxiety, paranoia, fear, because we realize how fragile those hopes are. We can never build tall enough walls. We can never have big enough uh, herds of pigs. Why? Because this world is uncontrollable. But here comes the one who is in total control of the world. And this is our last point. Jesus's authority is amazingly restorative. And here we see what we must see to separate us from the demons. And that is the character of the one who commands the world. Look with me at Luke 8, 37 through 39. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So what's absolutely interesting is the forces of darkness and light, slavery and freedom have absolutely flipped in this narrative, hasn't it? It is the man who is on the outside enslaved in the city who is seemingly free. But by the end of this, it's the city who is fearful and enslaved to what they fear. And it is the demon-possessed man who is freed. In fact, what everyone else fears, 
this man wants more of. He wants to get in the boat with Jesus. He wants to stay with Jesus. And the truth is you can be like the demons and you could be like the townspeople. You can confess Jesus's authority. The demons did that. You could witness his power. The townspeople did that. But unless you encounter the character of that man of power by being saved by him, you will always fear it. But this Jesus has come to those who live in fear. And I love how this man is found, sitting at Jesus' feet, fully clothed and in his right mind. What sin distorted, Jesus restored. The demons asked their very first question, what would you do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? The townspeople feared what might happen if Jesus stayed in their area. But in this man, we see what Jesus would do in full. All of his power, all of his authority, all of his strength would save, it would heal, and it would restore. We watch superhero movies, action films, and the hero vanquishes the bad guys, but often what's left in their wake, smoldering cities, collateral damage, We hear of doctors or surgeons who refuse to do certain procedures because the cancer is too intertwined with a vital organ or ones who attempt to do that at high risk but accidentally cause harm to the person they're trying to save. Is that how some of us view a life of following Jesus in the midst of a dangerous world? That yeah, at the end, there might be salvation, but is the cost too high? Is the power too disruptive, the change too transformative? But here we see the power of Jesus to save and the character of the one who saves. Jesus' power is disruptive, powerful enough to condemn. It's reorienting. It is dangerous to sin. It will condemn the demons. But the result of this salvation is not a man left shriveled and a town picking up the pieces. It is redemption and total renewal. This man is completely restored. The person of power we fear in our sin is the person of power we learn to love in our salvation. This is what Jesus is showing us. And what's crazy about this account, maybe you noticed this, is that the demons begged Jesus and he obliged. The townspeople begged Jesus, and he listened. But here the healed man begs Jesus, and Jesus says no. He doesn't give him what he wanted. Look again at verses 28 and 29. uh, 38 and and 39, excuse me. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city, how much Jesus had done for him. That's what we see here. We see first that we ought not to mistake God's nose in our prayer life for signs of his lack of love or apathy towards his people. The demons got their request and they fell off a cliff in a herd of pigs. The townspeople got their request and the kingdom of God crossed to the other side. But this man was turned down you know, in the midst of it, he was totally restored. And it's only here we actually see the full scope of the story. It doesn't take a, a PhD in biblical studies to see that of the three people who asked Jesus a question, that one of them was the one you want to be. 
that one of them went away healthy, satisfied, helped, restored. And it was the one who Jesus delivered. It shows the scope of Jesus' full redemption because remember how this began. How did Luke introduce this man? A man from the city who had demons. And what happened? He was driven from his home by the demons. He was naked on account of the demons. He was enslaved by the city and by the demons. But what did Jesus do? Jesus set him at his feet. Jesus clothed him. Jesus restored to him his right mind and he sent the forces of darkness packing. And where does this man end up in verse 39? Back in the city. You see, one day, one glorious day, Jesus will answer the problem of evil in full. He will remove the people he has died for from evil and chaos for all eternity and seal everything that harms in the abyss forever. But right now, he sends fully redeemed people back into a broken world, but this time with a story of salvation and a clear purpose. To those who stand on the hills wondering if the nature of this power is for you or against you, look at the cross. It is against you and that the wages of your sin is death and that day is inevitable and that time will come. But it is for you. For though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And he humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. This power is for you. This salvation would be yours if you would come. If you would see the character of the one who commands the world. And when we come, we are restored and repurposed for exactly what we're made for. Here's the great hope for evangelism. What does evangelism look like? It looks like Jesus sending you back saying, go to your town. Matthew adds that Jesus says, go find your friends and tell them what God has done for you. What does evangelism look like? Go, find someone you love, tell them what happened to you, and bring them to Jesus. Evangelism might terminate in the nations, but it begins in the neighborhood. It begins by going back as a new person to precisely the place God saved you from. And what do we share? Nothing more than what you've experienced. To have the gospel is to have everything we need for evangelism because it is to have the good news. By studying the Bible and looking into the depths of God, the good news gets gooder. It gets better. But to be saved entirely is to have what Jesus calls you to bear witness to. Go and tell you what God has done. And here's the wonderful, this man, this man becomes Up until this point in Luke, I think the greatest theologian. Because what does Jesus say? He says, go and tell them what God has done. And what does this man do? He goes throughout the whole city and tells them how much Jesus had done for him. We live in a world where anyone could claim something about God. But where does God do good to his people? Where has God done salvation in Jesus? 
We cannot speak of God's goodness apart from Jesus. And this man healed of his infirmity, infirmary, infirmities, having eyes to see, knows that the goodness of God is in the person and power of Jesus. And now we get to enter back in to this world, renewed and repurposed. You see, Christianity is not the belief or confession that God exists. Demons believe that. Christianity is not the belief or confession that God is powerful. Demons believe that. Christianity is the belief that God exists and that in Jesus Christ, he has accomplished good for you to restore what is broken, even though we didn't know it was wrong in the first place. So Jesus sends you back. He sends you out to declare today what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you are a power that we cannot understand. What we do understand in this world are the things we have no control over, and yet you have given us through the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of your word, through these accounts in scripture, an ability to understand the nature, character, and power of a Jesus who has entered into our world, who speaks into our slavery, and who sends us back as new people with a new story and a new testimony. Lord, we pray that this word is accomplished in our hearts so that we might share throughout our city the good that Jesus has done for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.